Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Patreon exclusive movie review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And this month, you voted The Shining. We're finally doing it, folks. The horror classic. And there is so much to say about this. This really hits home because growing up, my mom always said I have a little bit of The Shining. But as I got older, I realized what she meant was autism. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Well, it's going to be hard to tackle this. We're going to do the best that we can. This could be an entire podcast series, Breaking Down the Shining. And especially once you consider the novel, which we have to talk about, as well as there was a Stephen King miniseries and the Doctor Sleep sequel that we covered last year. Yes. So, Clatchers, if you didn't get around to that or if you forgot about it, it it might be fun to now watch Doctor Sleep and re-listen to that podcast. So, this was written, directed, and produced by Stanley Kubrick, and we're going to talk about all of the Kubrick-King controversy, as well as things that happened on set. IMDb is giving it an 8.4, Rotten Tomatoes an 84%, but the audience at a 93. This had a budget of $19 million and grossed $46 million, although we will discuss that it was not considered an initial success by any means. There are many, many critics' quotes out there, but I'll just give you two. One on the positive side says, though it deviates from Stephen King's novel, The Shining is a chilling, often baroque journey into madness, exemplified by an unforgettable performance from Jack Nicholson. And on the other side, they say Kubrick is a master of visual images and the scenes display his brilliance, but much of the suspense ends in anticlimax, as Nicholson and Duvall seem overextended in trying to maintain the terror. And I have to say, watching it for about the millionth time (laughs) last night, I have to kind of agree with one of Stephen King's comments that this is not really a scary movie. I mean, first of all, some of the scenes that terrified me from my childhood, iconic images like the elevator pouring blood, the twin girls standing in the hallway, Jack running after Danny in the maze with the axe. They're not quite as scary now, and there is so much time spent on the in-between that is supposed to be building tension. And in a way, it kind of does, but it sort of drags on at points that it's not quite as terrifying once you get to those moments. And there really are parts where Nichols, Nicholson's performance is so over the top mm-hmm. that you're almost laughing instead of being afraid. And a big part of this could be ever since I read the novel, the movie has taken on a lot less mystique for me. I am always one of those people that enjoys the book better than the movie, but I think in particular, King adaptations either nail it yeah. or they're terrible. <laughs> and a lot of people would say they really dislike this. A lot of people would say Kubrick's movie is completely different from King's novel and they both stand alone as masterpieces. I understand either of those arguments. I just think maybe the movie has run its course for me. You know, watching it this time with the caveat that when I was young... This was the scariest movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, to the point where I remember there was a few years where my father had conferences in Vegas as a young kid. I didn't spend time in hotels. 
So this was like one of my first times being in a giant hotel. And the hallways, albeit it looked nothing like these hallways, it still had the kind of carpet that had patterns and the long halls. Mm -hmm. And all I kept thinking of is The Shining when I would walk down it. And I didn't want to be alone because I was like, those girls are going to show up. Well, how (laughs) old were you when you first saw this? Do you remember? No. Because I think I was really young when I saw this for the first time. And that happens when you see a horror movie at a really young age, it leaves kind of this indelible impression. Yeah. And I didn't read the book until a couple of years ago. It took me a really long time to get around to some of King's I had read, but a lot of them I hadn't. Yeah. And I sort of thought I had the coda from seeing the movie so many times. You learn better because there's just so much more and we're going to get into talking about some of that. I do still think this movie is iconic. This time around, I'm on board with what you were saying. I didn't feel scared, really. Um, But it still, it had great moments. I think what he did really well, and we talk about this often, where sets are characters as well. I think the hotel as a whole, as a character, was done phenomenally. And the camera shots, which we'll get into, was a first for many people. But you're right, it's not as scary as I remember it being. He's a master of visual brilliance, and nobody's ever going to deny that. His movies were incredible when it comes to that. And he was doing groundbreaking things. I think what gets me is that for a long time, we also looked at this as a brilliant examination of psychological horror, the breakdown of a man's mind. But that's where it really falls short for me this time around, because King does an excellent job, as we always talk about, looking deeper into his characters, Mm -hmm. getting you to really know them and examining the psyche of Jack. Jack seems very one-dimensional in the movie after reading the story. And forget about Wendy and Danny. I mean, (laughs) they're just non-beings compared to how they are in the books. Part of it is your fault that you ruined it for me a bit. I say that jokingly because I actually enjoyed what you were telling me. Throughout the movie, you were telling me the differences from the book. And I was like, oh, that's so much better if they did that from the book. Why didn't they do that? (laughs) Well, there's always going to be problems with adaptation and time sequences and whatnot. But here it was really more of a Kubrick versus King thing. So let me start off just talking about the reactions. Because at the time this movie came out, they were mixed. It received generally unfavorable reviews when it was first released. The critics were harsh on it. And it was nominated for two Golden Raspberry Awards. Worst Actress for Shelley Duvall, and Worst Director for Kubrick. Uh. But no harsher criticism than from Stephen King, who had about a million things to say about it. I can't possibly give you all of his quotes. There was a (laughs) ton of them. But in 1983, he said, I'd admired Kubrick for a long time and had great expectations for this project, but I was deeply disappointed by the end result. Parts of the film are chilling, charged with relentlessly claustrophobic terror, but others fell flat. In particular, he disliked the casting of Jack Nicholson because he felt in the novel it was pivotal that Jack is initially a good man who is slowly overcome by the forces of evil and fighting a losing battle against alcoholism. King thought that Nicholson in particular was known for playing unstable characters. Think, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. He wanted someone who could play the character as more genial and good in the beginning. The big name he had in mind was John Voight. Oh, Angelina Jolie's father. Yeah. Now... (laughs) I think this is where King loses me because... How old was he then, though? Maybe it would have worked back then? It's not even about the age. Yeah, he was much younger. But he, too, also brings that a little bit unhinged, a little kooky sense to me. I want somebody who can slowly descend into madness. Like me. 
in my real life. No, <laughs> no. Jason Bateman would be awesome. Ewan McGregor, who just did Doctor Sleep. Now, he played the good oh, straight yeah. guy all the way through that, but imagine him even more so coming unhinged. There's people that can do it that you really buy. Maybe they're struggling, but they're inherently pretty stable and kind of a good guy yeah. in the beginning. For Nicholson from moment one, and this is what King kind of goes on and on to say, is that he's clearly got issues. And not just him, the family, the way they're acting towards each other from the start of the car ride in is weird. You're absolutely right. And when you pointed it out while we were watching it, I was like, from the first time we meet him, the first shot, you're like, there's something off about him. And maybe it's not Jack Nicholson's fault. Maybe it's just the aura that he has. But it's not even that. It's the writing. The way he's treating his family, the way he half listens to Wendy. The directing, too. It looks like it's an abused family. And I don't even mean physically. I mean emotionally, everything. From the get. There is less of an arc when he does go cray-cray. Yeah. And somebody put it so well. They said Jack Nicholson starts off at an 8 <laughs> and goes to an 11. Yeah. You need someone that can start off at a 2 and go to a 9. Yeah. I like this game. Let's think of a couple more names. Well, we're not going to do this for the other characters yet, but I'll just tell you for Nicholson since we're talking about him. Voight is who King wanted, but Kubrick was considering a couple other people, three big names in mind. And I don't think I like any of them, but they were Robert De Niro, Robin Williams, and Harrison Ford. Robin Williams plays a really good, emotionally distraught character. I've seen him in some deep films, I think that would be good, but I don't see him. could never get scary enough for me. Exactly. Ever. So that middle part, he'd be perfect for. De Niro, never emotionally soft enough for me in the beginning. Maybe Harrison Ford. I I like him as an actor. I'm sorry, I don't think he has the chops for this. Think of somebody like Leonardo DiCaprio. Think of him as warm and kind and innocent, like in Titanic, and then think of him in The Aviator. Django? Oh, Aviator, yeah. Or, or Django, or one of those types. Um, None of well, these I mean, actors... obviously he was too young then, but we're not thinking about that. No, I'm not considering age. Um, I keep going to funny people. Um, the guy who played, I keep saying The Room, it's not The Room, who played uh, the other... Gerald's Game? Gerald's Game, yeah. That guy. Yeah? He'd be great. He's already too old, but if we're not thinking of age, back Bruce, then he was Bruce Greenwood. Yes. Back then, he might have been too young, <laughs> but... <laughs> I got it. Kirk. <laughs> okay, well, let's keep this moving to say that it's important to mention critical opinion has become not just favorable over time. This movie has become a staple of pop culture. It is now regarded as one of the best horror movies ever made and makes it onto every list that you find of top movies. Oh, the horror. In fact, in 2018, the film was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I agree with that. Absolutely. It does have, and we'll point this out throughout the podcast, it does have its issues, for sure. But as it, I think it helped shape this genre. Well, think about it. it came out in 1980. Mm -hmm. So it was doing something nobody had done before at the time. Nobody has wanted to touch it since then. In mm -hmm. fact, Dr. Sleep was let's nobody go near it for the longest time because it was known as the sequel to The Shining. Right. Of course, 
our boy, Mike Flanagan, you tell me the movie can't be made and oh, I want to make it. I have to re-listen to that podcast. I wonder... We were I, high on it. Good. But I feel like I appreciate it more now. And I seem to recall when you said that Stephen King didn't like it, I was like, what? For this one? Now I understand. Now that you broke it down to me. He must really like Dr. Sleep. I wonder. Because it feels a lot more in the vein of what he was looking for. What's interesting about this, we're going to get to ratings on movies and everything like that later, but we did mention that they did a TV series adaptation because King was so upset. Mm -hmm. Do you know who directed that? No. Mick Garris, who did The Stand. And for a long time, he was the King boy before there was Flanagan and everyone else. And I've never seen it. I have to put that out there, which is weird for me. I really have to go watch the miniseries now. It gets not great, but not terrible reviews. But I like some of those. I, I really liked the original 94, The Stand. Oh, I loved it. And I like McGarris. Let me give you some background on the story. For the book, Stephen King got the idea while his family was staying at the Stanley Hotel. That's the model for this in Estes Park, Colorado. They were the last guests before it shut down for the winter and he saw a group of nuns leaving. It got him thinking the place had suddenly become godless. Oh, wow. And there's the spark. The family stayed in room 217. That's what it was in the book, but famously it was changed to 237 in the movie because there was an actual 217 in the Stanley Hotel, and they were worried that people would never want to stay there again. I, I, I get that. There's no 13th floor in hotels now, you know? What a mistake, though, because given the success, it probably would have went in the other direction for them. Everyone would want to stay. Everyone would want it. I think nowadays we're more, I say nowadays, uh, pre-2020, we're more apt to lean into the like, ooh, horror, let's stay there. I think back then it was really like, no, no. (laughs) Well, there was no 237 in the hotel, so that was a good alternative. Now, change over to the movie. At the time before this was developed... Kubrick was disappointed with Barry London, his previous film in 1975, because of its lack of box office success. It was criticized for being too long and too slow. And he realized he needed to make a film that would be commercially viable, as well as artistically fulfilling. It was said that he had his staff bring him stacks of horror books and planted himself in his office to read them. He was going to find the next good thing. Well, Kubrick's secretary from the other room heard the sound of each book hitting the wall as the director flung it into a reject pile after reading only the first few pages. This dude is an asshole. I mean, and not just I don't this. mean to disrespect the deceased, okay? But from all accounts, he was pretty kooky. He's like a Steve Jobs. Like, everything is at a high level, and every, the, there's a vibration all the time, and he gets angry real quick. You could tell just by looking at photos of him. But we're going to get into everything people said about him on this set. And that's just forgetting about all his other movies. Yeah, and remind me, I have a video for you to see. I don't know if you've seen it, the behind the scenes. He's an asshole. I've seen some of it, and I have quotes from it. Yelling at Shelley Duvall? Yeah, there was also a making of that apparently a lot came out about Duvall. (laughs) Anyway, he's flinging these books against the wall until finally one day, the secretary noticed it had been a while since she heard a thudding sound. She walked in to check on her boss and found him deeply engrossed in reading The Shining. Well, this is the one that stuck. So they go to shooting. There are a lot of differing accounts on this. When I say there is contradiction, controversy, whatever, from moment one of the filming of this movie, 
mm-hmm. through to the end, what people say about it, the way it was received afterwards, and we'll talk about that, conspiracy theories that came out of it. It's a mess. But apparently, according to Variety magazine, the film took almost 200 days to shoot. According to the assistant editor, Gordon Stainforth, it took much more, nearly a year. And by most accounts, it sounds like about a year. It was originally supposed to say take 17 weeks for the filming itself, but ultimately took 51. Ooh. Now, there were several versions for theatrical release, each of which was eventually cut shorter and shorter than the last, until about 27 minutes in total were removed. You can go on IMDb and see all the cut scenes, but the one we watched last night was the full, what they called the European version, because it remained uncut there. Okay. There were scenes like, remember when Shelley Duvall comes back into the hotel after when she's trying to get away? And she sees the... Uh, she sees the skeletons and yeah. the cobwebby. It's so weird. All of those types of scenes were cut, plus some scenes were just longer, where there's portions of it removed, such as the Ullman interview in the very beginning. Mm. All of the background that we get doesn't remain in the final version. Also, when first released, the film had an alternative ending. So after the shot of Jack's body, when he's running through the maze and he freezes, we get that weird ending photo of him. Yeah. (laughs) Get there. The film dissolves to a scene of policemen outside the hotel. It then cuts to a scene in a hospital with Wendy resting in a bed and Danny playing in a waiting room. Ullman arrives and tells her they have been unable to locate her husband's body anywhere on the property. On his way out, he gives Danny a ball, the same one that mysteriously rolled into the hallway earlier in the film. Uh. Ullman laughs and walks away, and the film dissolves to the move through the corridors towards the photo that we get at the very end. So all of that middle portion is just cut out. I thought it felt abrupt. And I kind of like that. It makes it more creepy. Yeah. We didn't find his body. Something to think about that should have been kept in there. But I get it. The end result, the one we watched, the uncut version, Mm -hmm. is two hours and 26 minutes. And you can feel the length at times. Yeah. You know, you talk about how how long it took, um, how many takes Kubrick would do. Don't forget, they were using film back then, Mm -hmm. which was so expensive. It's not digital now. We have terabytes of space. 19 million. I don't know how that's, when we get into this, all they spent considering everything they had to do. I understand it was 1980, but that's still not much if you look at all of this. We'll get there in a second. First, the eerie music for strings section of the soundtrack. This is amazing. It was previously used in two Doctor Who serials in 1967. I never watched those black and white ones. Me either, but how fitting. That is crazy. Okay, speaking of production, you asked me how much of this was filmed on location. Almost all of the production took place exclusively at the studios, with sets based on real locations. There are huge Huge. rooms and portions of this. Now, I know the exteriors, when you first walk up and you see the outside, was filmed on location. Okay. But even when they're inside, the lounges and the rooms, I can't believe that means they must have created all of that. But that's what it says. It says Kubrick often worked with a small crew, which allowed him to do many takes. It says all of the interior rooms of the Overlook were filmed at the studios in England. Uh, in fact, there were issues because of the intense heat generated from the lights that were used to recreate window sunlight. <laughs> if you think about the Colorado Lounge where Jack does his work. Yeah, it's a lot of light. That lounge set caught fire. <laughs> 
And there are talks from the staff that it was very, very hot on set when they were inside because there was no air conditioning in these studios. And they're wearing these outfits. It's supposed to be very, very cold. Yeah. Sweaters and jackets. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I said to you last night when Jack is in the maze and it's supposed to be freezing out, it's nighttime, snow everywhere. I said to you, he's not breathing smoke. And that's when you told me, it's actually hot in there. He's sweating right now. Well, <laughs> and outside, there were some scenes out there where they filmed in real snow. Okay. But I don't think... That wasn't real. It's parts of it, no, we'll get to it. And I don't think even it was cold the way it's supposed mm-hmm. to be cold here. But it's kind of funny if you watch back inside the hotel. Allman makes a point to tell them all of these rooms remain pretty much unheated throughout the winter because of the costs. Sure. So they're staying in that apartment area where Dick used to live. That's heated. Because it's, it's heated. It's self-isolated. It's its own little apartment. And the rest of it is on low to the point that things aren't going to freeze. In the novel, they talk about alternating, heating certain sections. No, he says that in the movie, too. Okay. He says you have to, in sections, you have to turn on heat for a little bit, then turn it off, turn on another section. But that means the majority of the time when they're not in their apartment, they're walking around, it's Very cold. Sure, yeah. I've stayed upstate in our house where they keep it at 55 just so the pipes don't freeze. Right. Until you get that heat up and going, you're cold. You're outside. And you (laughs) do see them inside wearing sweaters and scarves. And yet if you watch the way they're acting it, they're walking around, their body's very open, their arms hanging loose. They're not like you'd be tighter, curled into yourself at times, rubbing your arms. They look like they're walking around in 70-degree weather. That's true. Very true. <laughs> I bet the whole scene in the beginning during the interview, when Jack asks that very uh, poignant question, which I would too, why aren't you guys open during the winter? I bet you would make a killing with the ski season. I bet that was cut, but I'm glad it wasn't for our version because I would have said that the whole movie. Wait, why isn't it open? (laughs) It's Colorado. There's mountains there. They'd be making money. Well, let's come back to the production. You were talking about some of the groundbreaking things for filming. The big one was the new Steadicam mount. Yes. That had just recently come out. This was one of a handful of movies that used it when it first became available. And it was used to shoot several scenes to give it an innovative and immersive feel. Kubrick found the current cameras to be obsolete. He wanted a full range view, which they couldn't get with what they already had. So a colleague suggested this new technology. Initially, he was very hesitant because he didn't know a lot about it. But they wound up using it in scenes such as Danny on the tricycle when you're following him through the hallway. Yeah, you follow him behind. It's so creepy the way they do it. It's right behind him. Almost as if it's, you know, on its own tricycle. And that's what makes that creepy hallway even more creepy, you know? I love that because the depth of field, they're actually using that to their benefit because it can be creepy. You ever draw a long hallway or something with a lot of depth? And it lets your brain imagine what's down there. You add on top of that the movement, the sound of the tricycle, which somehow was creepy to me. Um, And then the old school orchestra music, right? With the, the violins. Um, well, it's funny that you say that it feels like we're on our own tricycle following behind him because Garrett Brown, the guy who was filming this, accomplished many of those ultra low tracking corridor sequences by putting the Steadicam mount on a wheelchair. <laughs> and grips would either pull backward or push forward the wheelchair depending on the requirement of the shot. 
Sure. So we could follow Danny in that way. If you look very closely when Danny stops the tricycle, uh, the cameraman doesn't stop at the same time. And you can almost feel him like, oh, shit. And like he stops just after. Well, because they're stopping that wheelchair. Yeah. It's not just a man (laughs) carrying a camera. Well, how about the opening scenes? Because those are different when we're following the car through the mountainside. Classic CKC, what we talk about, right? Every Stephen King movie starts with a car and an overhead shot of the car driving. But think about that. They didn't have drones. This is 1980. How did they achieve that? Helicopter. Helicopter. (laughs) I was blown away by this. To achieve the smoothness, the cameraman Greg McGilvray secured a wide-angle camera to the front of a helicopter and then balanced the blades to remove vibration to try to get it as smooth as possible. Balance the blades on the helicopter? I guess so. He knew how to do that? Well, I'm assuming he worked with... Someone who knew. The guy okay. and the, the pilot of the helicopter and whatever. This scene was actually shot on location, of course. They were in Glacier National Park in Montana, and that road really does close down during the winter and is only negotiable by snowcat. So there are places where that is true when they're saying nobody would be able to get to you. You wouldn't be able to get in or out. Now, the only shot in the film not achieved in camera was the slow zoom in on the model of the maze. And I know you like yes. that model. I really enjoy this part when they start to zoom in and you see Danny and Wendy walking around the center the middle, yeah. and you can hear them talking because they're going through the maze outside while Jack's looking at the model inside. So cool. To achieve this, a model of the maze was shot from six feet above. Okay. So they filmed that little model and none of that is, is real. And you can kind of tell when it's looking down and you think you see Jack and Danny because it's just white. It's, Wendy and Danny. Sorry, Wendy and Danny. It's just white the inside of the maze. Yeah. Um, But I still love those things when they shoot miniature models and it kind of looks like it's real. The best example I can think of, which was around the same time, I think, I'm a little ignorant, I didn't look it up, Beetlejuice. Yes. With that model. Yep. I bet they use the same kind of tricks. Yep. Now, the real maze itself consisted of 900 tons of salt and crushed styrofoam. So they created this maze. It's not as big as it appears to be in the movie, but they talk about how they strung chicken wire up and created it up to a certain height and then kept the camera relatively low down so the hedges would feel higher. Yeah. And it was big enough that the crew and everyone needed a map to use to actually (laughs) know how to get around. So they did a decent job with that. And like I said, there's parts where they film in real snow, but most of it when they're moving around in there is salt and styrofoam. So they faked it a little bit. Yeah. Movie magic. Do you think when they were doing it, Kubrick was walking around and he's like, do you think this will be tall enough? Can you make it look massive? And the guy's like, yeah, I think this will work. And then he looked at the amount of money they were spending and he goes, well, I guess we just need to hedge our bets and hope it works. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because we're just hedging our bets. Sorry. Okay, so that scene is iconic, but also the here's Johnny scene where Jack is axing through the door. Hey, was that ad-libbed? It was. Boom! By Nicholson. Nice! And very little, when we get into about Kubrick, was allowed to be ad-libbed, interpreted. But apparently he loved that so much, Jack came up with it on the spot, and they just kept it. The the behind-the-scenes? Stop me if I've shown you this, but... It's Jack Nicholson amping himself up mm. for that scene where he scares a set guy who's setting up the set, like freaks out and like runs away. 
He's like, I'm angry. I'm fucking angry. What? I'm getting crazy. I'm going crazy. Well, you would have to to be at this level he's yeah. at, right? The scene took three days to film. They used 60 doors. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg. Wait till we get into it. But apparently Jack was a volunteer firefighter in real life. Oh, wow. So they built a door that would be easy for a normal person to axe through. But because he knew what he was doing, it immediately just broke apart. Oh, wow. So they had to keep kind of making it thicker that it would take a while for him to axe yeah. through it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. When you first said it, I was like, well, I mean, filmmaking 101, you shoot a couple times of him axing through it, and then you use one door that's already been axed through to shoot the next por- portion. Why would he need so many? But now it makes sense. They just needed to keep making it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. Just to get into some of the how long things took and not even how Kubrick was acting towards the actors. But to give you an idea, one of the shots, do you remember where Jack is bouncing the ball against the wall? Every time I see that, I'm like, that would be me. If I was stuck there, I'd be throwing it against walls, making games out of everything. Do you remember at the end of the shot, the ball comes to the camera? Oh, no. I, I remember it. He loses the ball. He throws it and it goes into like a... But hallway. then it goes to the camera and the ball almost comes at the camera. No, I didn't see that. Okay. Well, Kubrick would be very upset to know that because he was so determined to get this precise shot where it would come back at the camera. The camera kept rolling while the ball was continually hit against the wall in the hope of it working correctly it took everyone on the entire unit having a go at it in between other shots until they finally got it to come back at the camera in the exact right way they wanted it to oh my god i i missed it sorry (laughs) my bad kubrick well let's talk about the actors and we will get into all of the kubrick craziness we'll start out with danny who apparently was the one person on set that kubrick had a really good relationship with the kid Danny Lloyd. That's his real name. Oh, wow. Danny is Danny. And Jack is Jack. All right. I might piss some uh, clatchers off, but I think that kid sucks at acting. (laughs) No, I do too, but hold that thought. Okay. I just want to talk about his relationship on set because Kubrick was apparently highly protective of him, where he was really difficult with the other actors. He was very good with Danny. And in fact, during shooting, Lloyd was under the impression he was making a drama, not a horror film. They didn't have him on set whenever anything scary was happening. And in fact, if you remember the scene where Wendy's carrying Danny away from the Colorado lounge over her body, she's actually carrying a life-size dummy. You can only see Lloyd from behind and his legs hanging down. That's not the kid. When she's yelling at him like, how could you? Yeah. And backing up. How could you hurt him like this? Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's too scary for the kid? Anything where they were talking about abuse or Danny getting hurt. Well, good on Kubrick. That's awesome. But that was one of my complaints. I'm like, the kid's just laying there like a doll. Is this Also, is it <laughs> making sense why his acting, half the time, he doesn't, he doesn't really know he's supposed to be acting anything scared or weird. Oh. That's going to confuse me later when we get to the red rum scene. Because I don't Bad know rum. what they told him about that. He's Bad talking rum. in this scary voice. Like, How did they explain this? But they say that Danny Lloyd only realized the truth several years later when he saw a heavily edited version of the movie. And he didn't see the full uncut version until he was 17, 11 years after he made the movie. Wow. Now, I have to wonder if this was because of stories of other movies, such as The Exorcist, where child actors were traumatized by seeing the result of the movie they created. (laughs) 
Oh, I wonder. I wonder. But another cool thing, I guess the idea for Danny to move his finger while he was talking as Tony was the actor's, Danny Lloyd's idea. He did it spontaneously for his first audition. I don't like it. I don't like it either. (laughs) It's weird, and it takes away from the scariness. It really does. The voice is creepy. I like the, Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. Like, (laughs) it's terrifying. But again, like, how did they, what did they tell the kid to do that? If he doesn't know that this is scary. Well, I have to say on top of that, what bothered me this time after watching Dr. Sleep, I, I now have an emotional ownership over Tony mm-hmm. or adult Danny from Dr. Sleep knowing who he is as an adult. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't make sense. If he's coming back to help Danny, why would he be like... We're going to talk more about Tony, a lot more about Tony in a minute. Uh, coming back to how Kubrick was with people on set... Apparently, to get Nicholson in an agitated mood, he was fed only cheese sandwiches for two weeks because he hates cheese sandwiches. That's all he was allowed to eat for two weeks. He doesn't like cheese? I guess they were just plain cheese sandwiches. Do you think it was the wrapped cheese? Because I'd be pissed off too. Like, <laughs> stop giving me this fucking individually what wrapped piece of cheese. cheese product. <laughs> but see, that's exactly the state that he wanted him in. But. Okay, that's minor. Mm-hmm. You hear stuff like that with the other actors and the rest of the people working there. But the way he was with Shelley Duvall seems like oh. a whole other level Abusive. of insanity. Okay. I mean, reportedly she suffered from nervous exhaustion throughout the film, including physical illness and hair loss. Her hair was falling out. She was so distraught. She was having to cry through so many takes. Oh, I can imagine. That they said she ran out of tears and they would have to stop for her to drink and rehydrate because she couldn't produce any more tears. On the DVD commentary track, Vivian Kubrick, Stanley's wife, reveals that Duvall received no sympathy from anyone on the set, which was one of Kubrick's tactics to make her feel utterly hopeless. He kept saying, it doesn't help her for you to be like that with her. Stop sympathizing for her. Right. He allegedly picked on her more than anyone else, would really lose his temper, telling her she was wasting the time of everyone on set, just kind of being awful to her. She later reflected in interviews that he was probably pushing her to the limit to get the best out of her and said she wouldn't have changed it because the end result was the best thing she ever created, but she would not do it again. All right, we've got snow machines. We're looking at a behind the scenes. Tell them to reduce the snow. Reduce the snow, Do I have that stuff in my hand? I've got it. Okay. I stand by, boys. Okay, Malcolm. I'll cut. Right, roll video. Video speed, Stanley. Right, clear back, boys. Okay, turning, Doug. No, wait, man. Forget it. Hold it. Cut it. Keep it rolling. Keep the video rolling. Keep video rolling. Reduce Oh, come on. What do you mean, roll video? Seconds. We're killing ourselves out here, and you've got to be ready. I am too. I'm standing right by the door. Should we play mood music? 
No, I yeah, can't. But when hear. you came out like this, you said it is. We're sitting there because they say, wait yeah. a minute, okay. and then you say yeah. on the radio, but when you go. do it, you've got to look desperate, Shelly. You're just wasting everybody's time there. I can't even get this well, the door open. Well, have... On the record, I got such a bollocking because they said, turn over, and they said, video rolling and all that, and I got all ready, jump up and down, and then, then they said, never mind, cut it. And then I went to take a bite of soup. Next thing I know, action, Shelly. I mean, that's just a tiny example, but you see how, like, he has no patience for her. Yeah. You gotta look desperate. What are you doing? <laughs> well, he's crazy. I'm looking at him. I would never want to. Oh, he's scary. He scares me. He should have been Jack. Maybe that would have been a good idea. And it wasn't just with Duval. I mean, it was particularly painful, apparently, and bad where she was concerned. But Philip Stone, who plays Grady, recalled his scene with Jack Nicholson. Oh, is it that you did Grady so much better than him? Is that what you were going to say? No, I don't even want to think about that scene because we did it so badly. But apparently in real life, they shot it 50 or 60 times, always in one take. He wanted it to be a one take scene. Okay. So he says, then Jack Nicholson, Stanley and I would sit down and look at each take on a video. And Jack would say, that was pretty good, wasn't it, Stanley? And Stanley would say, yes, it was. Now let's do it again. (laughs) <laughs> let's do it again let's do it again uh, Clatchers I hope you listened to the bonus this month I, I think it's it was so serendipitous that we did that and now we're reviewing The Shining not knowing that we were going to be doing The Shining yeah we did our CKC's terrible table reads on that exact scene uh, what I'm going to do is release that scene on Patreon so you can compare and actually see how amazing Christine and I were, were for so that scene. Ba- I don't know why he's talking about I'm this. I'm in denial. so bad. I think we were amazing. So bad. Um, the scene where Jack is chasing Danny through the maze took over a month to shoot. Oh, my goodness. Uh, apparently, the crew members, despite these maps that they had, often found themselves lost and had to use their walkie-talkies for assistance. And the perfectionism extended to insisting that cast members be on set to be measured for the lighting of the scene. Now, we don't know a lot about movies, but I read this is something that's normally done with stand-ins. Yeah. Because you have to start it hours before the regular filming begins. Oh, we know that from Love Actually. (laughs) One of our favorite couples were stand-ins. Yep. So they set up the lights. They make sure it's falling on people properly. You don't need the actors themselves to be there for this, but Kubrick insisted it. And Jack Nicholson claimed that he was the only director he ever worked with who wanted them there to pose for the lighting because of the additional time. And they're already here yeah, doing you don't want your actors exhausted. 20, 30, 50 takes on a scene. It said that it brought Scatman Crothers to tears at one point. Oh, wow. There are some reports that he did the ice cream scene with Danny a hundred times. Oh. And that he finally broke down and said to Kubrick, what are you looking for? I don't understand what you <laughs> want. And if you go back and watch the ice cream scene, Scatman looks actually kind of, terrified at moments and he's not supposed to he's supposed to be being warm to Danny but it's almost like he's so afraid that he doesn't know what to do or what to say I wonder and I think that a lot of our performance problems Kubrick might have just pushed them past the limit I understand that there's moments where he needed them to get worked up and this was a tactic but it feels like he went way over the top yeah and it ruined some of them it feels like that to me too (laughs) But anyway, like I said, we could go on about that all day. There's a ton of other reports on it. Those are just some of the big ones to give you an idea those of what are it was fun. like. Thank on you for set. those. But let's talk about the characters themselves a little. 
We really have three big ones, and then we'll discuss the others just briefly. First, we have Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Mm-hmm. He grew up in New Hampshire, where his father worked in the community hospital, and he had three older siblings. He is a writer, former teacher, and debate team coach, whose alcoholism and volatile temper cost him his job at Stovington Prep, where he assaulted George Hatfield, whom he caught vandalizing his car after George accuses him of cheating. Wow. These are things this is that all in the book. we get in the book that we don't get to see here. What leads up to Jack taking this job okay. at the Overlook? And he's in a much more desperate position in the books that he really has nothing left. He's always wanted to be a writer, but in between writing, he needs to make a living. So he took a job that his friend got for him at Stovington Prep teaching. He did okay, but the drinking got worse and worse over the years that he would show up to classes hungover. Mm. It was still okay until he gets into it with a student of his. So he also taught the debate team. And there's a kid called George Hatfield who you can tell that Jack has a problem with right off the bat because this kid is rich and he has been given anything he ever wanted in life. If he couldn't get it, dad would pay for it. And he actually is kind of a good debater, but he has a stuttering problem. And every time they get to an actual debate, he starts to stutter. And Jack is telling him, you have to get this under control or you can't be on the debate team. And supposedly he's telling him nicely, but in his mind, he's almost taking a pleasure in telling him that because Mm -hmm. it's the first thing that Hatfield can't fix. fix. He, He doesn't know what to do with it. But the day that he actually cuts him, Hatfield comes to him afterwards really upset and says, you set the timer ahead. Like you shortened the amount of time I had for you rigged it to get me off the team. And Jack is saying, I didn't rig it. It's the problem is the stutter. I've told you this. If you work on it, you could be really great, but there's nothing I can do. They keep going back and forth. And in Jack's mind, he's going, I never rigged it. And even if I did rig it, it would have been to help him because there's no way he's going to make it on this team. And even if I set it ahead, I couldn't have done it more than 20 seconds. And (laughs) you start wondering, maybe he actually did because he wanted to show this kid, but they never tell you for sure. It gives you inklings of Jack's slow descent, right? But this really culminates because I forget if it's the next night or whenever George Hatfield slits all of Jack's tires on his car. And Jack comes out and finds him doing that and assaults him. He starts beating him up. Other teachers have to pull him off the kid and they fire him from Stovington Prep. His friend who got him the job, who used to teach with him, Al Shockley, was telling him, Go away, lay low for a little while. I'll see if I can talk the board back into giving you your job back. And in the meantime, he gets him this position at the Overlook, which he owns a good portion of share in the hotel. Oh, wow. And he says, all you got to do is be caretaker. You can work on your writing. But it's sort of a last-ditch attempt because he also knows that Jack's trying to get clean, Mm -hmm. get off the alcohol. It's also very shortly before this, we find out that he broke Danny's arm, which we also get in the movie. Yes. One moment of muscular. Yeah. I mean, you could see this is where it snaps for him. And in the books, you find out. Ooh, pun intended. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the books, you find out that Wendy has been concerned, thinking about leaving him. And when that happens with Danny, she goes to tell Jack to have the conversation that they have to get divorced. He asks for one more chance, and she can see he's actually stopped drinking. 
He said, I'll never do it again. I'll never drink a dr- another drop. But even during the conversation, she can tell he's dry. And mm-hmm. he hasn't been for a long time. So she gives it one more chance. He actually starts to get his stuff together over the next couple of weeks. And then he gets this job. So it's really a last opportunity for his work, for his family. relationship with his family, and yeah. for himself and his own alcoholism. It's important to know that because I don't think you really get this in the movie, how dire these circumstances are for Jack and how important this job is. How many chapters in the book are before they even start the trip? Oh, many. That's amazing. So you get a whole full... Not even just before they start the trip, but then once they get there, you spend a long time of when the weather's still okay Mm -hmm. and they're going into town during the day. Jack's working on his book. He's fixing up some things around the hotel. The family is doing pretty well. They're enjoying their time together, and they're all thinking, maybe this is the answer. Maybe this is what we needed all along. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine it's actually the ability to press pause on life but still get paid. Mm -hmm. And he might get to write this book that he's wanted to (laughs) forever. Yeah. You I know, think it's, it, it's a beautiful book, many pages. <laughs> it seems like a chance. But what's important to say here is that in the book, Jack is seen as a tragic hero whose shortcomings eventually lead to his downfall. But after this slow, consuming process of him fighting back and a back and forth in the movie, it implies that Jack is really close to insanity from the very beginning. And he's a lot less sympathetic. We don't get the relationship with Danny and how much Danny loves his father and they're so do not close that. to each other. It's like he's weird with him from the get. Oh my God. If you hadn't told me that, I was thinking that the kid was uh, afraid of him already before they even went in the car. Wendy talks about it in the books a lot, how she almost gets jealous because she says from the time he was first born, Danny, while he loved his mother, was always his father's mm. boy. He could put him to sleep in a matter of seconds, get him to stop crying. Once he started getting older, Danny would follow Jack around. So there's a lot more depth to Jack in the book. And that scene where he snaps is such a, an uncharacteristic moment mm-hmm. with Danny. But she says it's almost like Danny knew that. And even after that, he still loved his father so much. Like it didn't dampen their relationship in Danny's mind. Yeah. And a lot of this is because of The Shining, which we also get in these chapters leading up to them leaving. All these things that that The Shining can do for Danny, how he's able to basically read his parents, to know how they're feeling and what they're going through. And he can sense that his father is really struggling with something and trying so hard. And he gets these dark feelings at times. And He knows that his father feels like this job at the Overlook is his last chance. And that's why even when they get there and Danny starts seeing things, he won't tell his parents. He knows that they had feelings of divorce running through both of their minds at some point, even though neither of them said it out loud. So Danny is also a much more rounded character. But I think that Jack is the one that you're really not getting enough of the backstory. And just to end that out, there's also a really traumatic childhood from Jack's past, Mm. this relationship with his father, where his father was very physically abusive, almost beat his mother to death one night. And so Jack's kind of been running from that his whole life as well. You know, for the movie, I can forgive that, not having that background. I can understand why we wouldn't be given all that. They could have done a better job of making him look more loving in the beginning, for sure. That arc that we talked about 
But what I can't forgive is how they dropped the ball on the title of the freaking movie, The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> they don't use that enough with Danny and even Dick. I think Dick would have been great if the, he was utilized more. Mm-hmm. But they don't explain what The Shine is at all. They don't explain how actual hotel is getting stronger and stronger as they're there because they're feeding off of Danny's shine. That's never brought up. You see that at first, you know, you see the girls there as soon as Danny gets in there. That's because Danny has the shine. Mm-hmm. It you, wakes it up almost. Exactly. You don't see that the spirits are going after Danny right away because that's what they need. They need that to empower them, to make them stronger. Those spirits are always there throughout the year, but the hotel guests don't see it. It doesn't bother them. It's really in the background where it, it's harmless. But because Danny's there with the shine... So strong. And he's the strongest that Dick has ever seen, which says a lot from what we learned with Dr. Sleep because the kid in that one is even stronger than Danny. Mm-hmm. I think they dropped the ball there. And it's, it's so interesting that they do talk about this in the books, that the hotel initially wants Danny. Mm-hmm. They want him because of his shine, his ability, whatever. But then they meet Jack, and it's as though they realize this is a soul they can manipulate. Yes. They can use to get what they want. And there is a bit of a question throughout if there's some shining in Jack as well. And that extends over into Dr. Sleep, where they kind of confirm for us in the books that that's why both Abra and Danny had the shining because Jack was actually both of their father. And so he had some of this in him from the beginning. Right. Which would make sense because Wendy never really experiences these things. She does at some point when it... At the end when they're at their full power. It gets out of control. Yeah. But why does Jack get it early as well? Because he's got a bit of this shining and they think they can use him. But in addition to all that, the shining allows Danny to feel, to feel things intuitively that are happening with his parents, to see things, to get glimpses of the future. He receives these frightening visions and messages from Tony, which in the books are a warning. Mm. Tony's trying to help him. He doesn't always understand. And this is why Danny is afraid of him. But none of that is clear in the movie. The Shining doesn't really seem to do much for Danny, except give him wacky visions and make him space out. And Tony (laughs) seems to maybe at times actively be trying to hurt him. So. (laughs) With the knowledge that we have now about the way it's supposed to be, Mm -hmm. I think Stephen King is right. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He bastardized the the best part of this book or Mm -hmm. of this story. Well, and in addition to The Shining, it's also Danny's character because in the books he's five years old. He's supposed to be seven here. He's extremely intelligent and intuitive. Shining aside, I mean... His vocabulary, the way he understands adult things. Everyone in the book comments on it. The doctor says, if you ever had his IQ tested, which Jack doesn't believe in, it would probably be off the charts. I've never seen a kid his age. You probably never have to talk down to him. Like, he's really, really smart. And there is, there's a lot to his character. He's very much another force. All three of them, Jack, Wendy, and Danny. In the movies, Danny is hardly there. And I think you're right. This child actor, he might look a good part visually. Yeah. But he does almost nothing. There's a couple of scenes where he's spacing out that he looks kind of good. And he does the Red Room voice pretty good. But, I mean, 
it's told that they auditioned about 600 kids wow. for this. Uh, the first choice, actually, that Kubrick wanted for Danny was Carrie Guffey, who is the kid from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, you don't remember that kid? No. Okay. I, I don't understand how you go through all those kids and you, you wind you up on, on Danny one. Lloyd. I just, I don't think he was right. There's so many movies we've seen, um, The Sixth Sense, where the kid really added to the story and, and heightened Phenomenal it. Phenomenal actors. I think if they had a better kid, it would have helped. You could even get an eight-year-old kid who looks young. Yeah. At eight, I looked like I plausibly could have been five. <laughs> and age doesn't really matter in this storyline, so you could have just aged if him up. If you got to age him up another year or so. I Make mean, him 10. Who cares? <laughs> You really, you don't get much from him, but I'm going to say I agree again with Stephen King. The problem here is what Kubrick thought he was looking for. Mm. He didn't want King's interpretation of the characters. He wanted his interpretation of the characters and was seeking out actors like Nicholson, who could play a crazy Jack. Right. Danny, who was just going to be this kid who was disconnected the whole time. And Wendy, which... King goes on and on that she is the biggest travesty, and I agree. She is completely and totally nothing like book Wendy. Okay. And there was a huge thing about this that not just King, but Jack Nicholson as well, they all wanted somebody different. Nicholson urged Kubrick to take Jessica Lange as Wendy, but Kubrick kept insisting he wanted Shelley Duvall because his take on the Wendy from the books was that she would be a lot more emotionally submissive <laughs> and abused and essentially weak. And King wrote her as an essentially strong character. More dynamic. She has her own mind, her own personality. You know, he, he says that all she does is cry and run around and do nothing in this movie. And it's kind of true. It is true. And I, I'm not knocking Shelley Duvall because clearly this is the way Kubrick told her, right, yeah. <laughs> broke her down to act this role. What he wanted out of her, he got. But I think his vision was totally skewed. I think this all goes back to what you said at the top of this podcast. Kubrick just had a flop. He was trying to make a blockbuster to revive his career. And he was trying to go for the, the scare factor, just the ending. He was concentrating on the ending of this story which bled into the beginning in his take on it. It, it was more about the, the crazy scares and the, and the intense Jack Nicholson. Well, and in his mind, it's so much scarier if the family, like you said, is very obviously afraid and abused the entire time. Right. I think it's much scarier if they're a relatively normal, loving family. I think so, Who too. descends into madness because of their own issues, because of what the hotel is doing to them, because of the... Sh that's terrifying. That is, because it leaves the viewers walking out going, I'm really happy, but like, could that happen to our family? I mean, we have a great family, but could it switch like that if we go to the wrong hotel for a little while? And even Ullman makes a point of saying it happened to the Grady family, that they mm. talk about the news clip on the way in. Oh, the family that got lost. When they're driving in, he's telling the story about um, this group of pe people that got... The Donner. There we go, yeah. Donner party. They got lost and... Turned were, cannibal. Yeah. But basically, the point, and Ullman even says it, is that they all suffered from cabin fever. Right. So in addition to the spirits and everything that's going on at the Overlook, just being isolated for five months with mm -hmm. only each other. Yeah, I'm going to stop there because I just, I could go on and on. But I think that our three main characters were the three biggest 
mistakes in Kubrick's interpretation. I have to agree. Now that I'm loaded with the knowledge you've given me, I'll never read that book. It's too too many words. You should. You would (laughs) love it. But I want to add to it that a character that always intrigued me, that I wanted to learn more about, that I think would be a great way of telling the story from the book to screen is Dick. Mm -hmm. I wanted more from him. To the point where Kubrick makes him make that long trip back to just walk in and go, anybody here? And dead. I don't. What the hell? Get it for a minute. Uh, Let's start by saying Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers. He's awesome. He's just amazing and universally beloved. Most people who talk about this movie can all agree that they liked his interpretation of the character. But they could have used him to explain The Shining to us. Take what's in the book that you don't have time to explain. And they kind of of did. No, no. But the ice cream scene. um, And... He explained it through the lens of talking to a kid, Mm -hmm. which means it's leaving out a lot. Yeah. With the knowledge we have from Dr. Sleep and from what you've told me in the books, The Shining is so interesting and so unique as far as storytelling goes that I'm appalled that it wasn't used or utilized in Kubrick's story. Well, and again, because I think Flanagan did a much better job of showing you in Dr. Sleep Mm -hmm. what it's actually about. And how it's haunted. It's hunted by the hot chick with the top hat. Rose the hat. <laughs> and her crew. Yeah. And ghosts. The true knot. Yeah. Yeah. The big thing here, though, is why did he kill Dick at the end of the movie? Dick lives in the book. He helps Wendy and Danny escape from the hotel. You could still have, if you want Jack to die the way he dies, rather than being exploded in the boiler room, which I don't even understand why he decided not to use that ending either from the books. Um, But you could still have him there helping them escape exactly the way he does, just not getting killed. So I, I can't quite understand why he followed the books all the way through, that we're building up this character, we're bringing him to that point, and then we're just killing him off. His arc is abruptly cut short, and I don't get it. Why does he run into the hotel announcing he's there uh, as opposed to coming in and then talking to Danny in his mind, in his mind, they can shine. Why is he yelling? Danny, where are you? Is everything okay? You know, no sense. It makes no sense. We also have to mention here. This was not the original choice either. Kubrick wanted slim Pickens who he had worked with in Dr. Strangelove previously. But Pickens absolutely refused to work with him again because (laughs) of his experience. Hell no, I'm not working with you again. Um, Oh, here it is. Supposedly 148 takes of Halloran explaining The Shining to Danny, where I said I think it's over 100. 148 of that. 148 takes. No wonder Danny's (sighs) face is just like, uh... He's falling asleep. uh, (laughs) Scatman, I don't even know what you're saying anymore. Okay, we got to get to the plot. So let's just breeze over. We also had Stuart Ullman, played by Barry Nelson, the manager of The Overlook. Oh, wait, 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 wait. First of all, I liked him. But what about the, uh, I guess you would say, like, assistant manager? Oh, yeah. He's, he doesn't say one word ever. He's just in the background making faces. Because in the books, they're all getting yelled at by Ullman because he's such a perfectionist. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're like trying to... Why is he there? ...shut down the hotel for the winter. This is the last day. So they're closing everything up. Guests are leaving. Mm. And he keeps keeping them later. And 
They're just trying to get out of there. <laughs> so. Sorry. Okay, let's move into the plot. Yeah, Ullman's pretty um, difficult. But then you also have Delbert Grady, played by Philip Stone, the previous caretaker, and he's going to play a decent role, even though he's not on screen much. The Delbert Grady? Why, yes, sir. <laughs> and finally, Lloyd, played by Joe played by Joe Turkle, the ghostly bartender. I love him. He made a lasting impression as a kid to me. Yes, but guess who was originally supposed to play Lloyd? Who? Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, I love him. Right? He would have been good too. He would have been, and I see the look now, why they picked Joe Turkle when they couldn't get him. Same, same, similar look. Um, Harry Dean was unavailable because that's when he was filming Alien. Oh, okay. And I mean, good choice because his role in that was great too, but I can't stop thinking about that now. Okay, let's get into our plot. So I'm not going to go through this as we go along, but we do get title cards that come up throughout the course of the movie. In the beginning, it says the interview, then closing day. A month later, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday, 8 a.m., the time frames are getting shorter and shorter right. as we more rapidly spiral into this descent. But we open up with writer Jack Torrance arriving at the Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains to be interviewed for this position of winter caretaker. The hotel, which opened in 1909, was built on the site of a Native American burial ground. Maybe important later, we don't know. And it closes down during the snowed-in months. You brought this up when we reviewed... Dr. Sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is pivotal. It's important to Dr. Sleep. No, I disagree. I think it's important to this storyline because my question throughout this was, was the hotel having its own shine, mm. as Dick would say, mm-hmm. when Grady came and made him crazy? Or is it just Grady haunting? And then we start seeing there's other ghosts around. So I'm saying in my head, when did this start? When was the hotel littered with these evil spirits? Well, the fact of this Native American burial ground. It always has been. It always has been. And Mm -hmm. we know how uh, Christopher Columbus and his uh, amazingness uh, raped and ravaged the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. These are distraught souls. Um, Maybe didn't receive proper burials. So with that knowledge, I mean, that adds to the character of this hotel. This hotel from the beginning was going to be haunted. Unrestful. I, I love yes. how Dick says it. The way some people can shine, some places can shine. Yes. And this hotel does. And Allman describes it really well, too. He says, the winters can be fantastically cruel. The basic idea is to cope with the very costly damage and depreciation which can occur. And this consists mainly of running the boiler. Here you go. Heating different parts of the hotel on a yep. rotating basis. And repairing damage so that the elements can't get a foothold. So in addition to all that, we always describe how... It's the most scary if you have that as well as natural problems. Sure. The very serious danger and fear that you could get snowed in here for five months, literally just buried in under the elements. Yep. You have one radio. <laughs> Anybody who can get to you would have to come on snowcat, which means it could take hours, even days. What if anything goes wrong? What if you fall down the stairs and you break your leg? What if you have a horrible flu or a fever? You're just, they're not prepared for any of this stuff. And to me, that is terrifying. I was thinking I would not be good for this job because I can't fix shit. (laughs) And (laughs) guaranteed there's no internet, well, especially back then, but there's no YouTube of like, how do you fix a broken boiler? (laughs) I don't know how to do this. 
Well, they do have explanations and checklists and Jack, he kind of like is figuring out a little bit as he goes along. So in the books, he's doing a lot of this during those early months where he can go into Sidewinder, the local town. He can get shingles to fix the roof oh, up. Oh, okay. And one of the big things that I found the scariest moment from the book is early on, he's going up to fix the roof and he encounters a huge hornet's nest up there and a couple of them sting him. So he thinks he's got to get rid of it. He goes, he gets a bug bomb. He bombs and kills the nest. And he has this idea for whatever reason in his head. When he was younger, his father did the same thing and gave him the nest to put in his room. Once it was completely empty and cleared out and dead, just the actual nest itself. Mm -hmm. So he wants to give this one to Danny. It's weird, but they don't make it out to be a weird thing in the books. So he comes back. Everything is cleared out. All the bees are gone. He takes the nest. He gives it to his son, puts it in his room. Later on that night, they wake up and Danny is screaming because a couple of the hornets that were apparently left inside the nest got out and stung him. And they're telling you this story about how hornets can sting Multiple, multiple times. times. And so he's got like 10 stings wow. up and down his arm. He's having an allergic reaction. It's swelling up. That same fear of like, what do you do? Yeah. Jack is worrying. Could he be allergic? Could we get him to a doctor? The roads are still open at this point. They don't wind up needing to. They give him a bunch of aspirin. They, they treat the arm. They go to the doctor the next day and he's okay. But after Jack puts Danny to bed, he goes back to deal with the nest and he was going to leave it overnight because they killed the three, two or three hornets that came out of it and deal with it the next day. But he decides to just do it right now. And it's swarming. He had put a bowl over it. There's literally hundreds of hornets in the Pyrex bowl. And he's going, how is this possible? I bombed it. Maybe one or two survived, but this is crazy. It's yeah. The house. And they, they came back to life. Wow. Um, and just the way King goes through it, it is so scary. It's one of the things that stands out most in my mind about the book. But there's also a moment where he's up there and he gets stung and he thinks he almost fell right off the roof. Just a normal accident that could have killed him. You know, I was thinking in real life, they wouldn't just have one guy and his family there to take care of it. They would have at least 20 people on grounds to, to maintain their property during the winter. Well, they also go through how Ullman is cheap and... He's the only one who's been able to turn the hotel around because it was in a depression for a long time. Okay. But they're doing better because he's pinched pennies and he's done X, Y, Z. Okay. You know. Got it. Anyway, that brings us to once hired, Jack plans to use the hotel solitude to write. And he meets with the manager, Stuart Ullman, who warns him about the hotel's reputation. The previous caretaker, Charles Grady, who killed his family and himself. Uh, in the books, Jack doesn't find out about that until much later on his own mm. and is upset that he didn't know the backstory here. Yeah, I'd be pissed too. Here he does find out and is nevertheless impressed, weirdly, and in love immediately with the hotel and he takes the job. He's in love with the idea of pressing pause on life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in the movie from the very beginning he keeps saying i love this hotel don't well, you yeah. love it here like he's, he's oddly obsessed mm -hmm. meanwhile in boulder jack's son danny has a premonition about the hotel and wendy tells the doctor about danny's imaginary friend tony she also reveals jack is a recovering alcoholic who once injured danny in a drunken rage another kind of pointless in the movie character the doctor mm -hmm. a poor attempt of trying to fill us in with danny 
But I think Shelley Duvall, that's the only opportunity she had to act. And I think she did a good job because when she's explaining what happened, she has a smile on her face. But it's a little bit of a guilt smile. Nervous. Nervous smile. I think that was done very well. Again, it's one of the fallbacks with movies. You only have a certain time frame and you have to jam some information in as quickly as possible. Again, though, an amazing scene in the books and didn't really have to be that much longer. But the way it was handled told you a lot about... Danny, The Shining, it is that opportunity, like you said, to learn more about it. Mm. The family, I won't get into it, but if you've read the book, this is a great secondary role for the Doctor here. Oh, please redo The Shining, but with the same characters from Doctor Sleep and like have Tony be there as... Oh, that would be cool. That'd be awesome. That'd be cool. Well, now the family moves into the hotel and they meet head chef Dick Halloran. I'm the scat man. Who offers Danny ice cream. And starts to explain to him about The Shining. Uh, This is what his grandmother called it. They shared this telepathic ability. That's where Dick learned about it. He says, you know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Like when someone burns toast. When some things happen, they leave other traces behind. Not things anyone can notice, but things that only people with The Shine can see. Just like they can see things that haven't happened yet. Or see things that happened a long time ago. I think a lot of things happened in this particular hotel over the years, and not all of them were good. Dick is amazing with analogies. With analogies. I just kept thinking, like, oh, my God, that's a perfect way to explain it to a kid. Burnt Burnt toast. toast. It lingers. He also tells Danny, as we mentioned, the hotel has a shine of its own, and he warns him to stay away from room 237. What I like about this is that we see that Dick doesn't want to tell or scare Danny He never says the hotel is bad. It's Danny who presents it. Are you scared of this hotel, Mr. Halloran? No, why would I be scared? And then Danny starts to bring up the room and all this stuff. Inevitably, I think that's when Dick realizes how strong Danny is. Mm -hmm. But he never really once says, because you can't with a child, especially, what is he, five? Mm -hmm. You can't be like, this place is bad. It's horrible. You know, what are you going to do? And he tries to give him the confidence that I think these things have worked for Dick in the past. Yes. They can't actually hurt you. They're just like pictures in a book. That's something to note. We, um, we discussed how the house feeds off of Danny to get more powerful. But you would say to yourself, but Dick's there all year round during the season. How come they're not getting more powerful? Uh, Dick is older. He's We know the shine is much less. Yeah, he's not as strong. But also... Um, You know, as you get older, your powers, you learn how to use them. You learn how to protect yourself. Obviously, Dick learned how to protect himself from the house. And I think he does get worried at the notion that Danny's shine is much stronger because would that work for him? But he doesn't really know either. And he figures if the worst place is 237 and Danny stays away from it, he'll be okay. But why is that the worst place? It's just a woman. Uh, I mean, it's scary, but that is obviously not the scariest ghost. Why would that be the worst room? They don't really explain it, but it feels like she is the most active, the most menacing. Mm. Well, she had the ability to to harm Danny, so you might be right, yeah. And almost Jack, so... But again, one of the weaknesses, there's no story behind it. What happened to her? Who is she? Why is she? She's not uh, the wife of Grady, so what's her storyline? Why is she so wicked? There's no evidence of the burial grounds, there's no like Native Americans there haunting them. So the ghosts as a character is flawed. It's not as strong. Yeah. So now I think it's important to just briefly mention, we talked about how Al Shockley got Jack this job here. 
because he's got this large interest in the Overlook. He's a powerful man. At some point, once Jack first kind of starts working there, he's up in the attic, he starts going through boxes, and he finds a scrapbook. Mm. And it's all stuff about the hotel. That's where he learns about Grady, that he killed his family, but all this other stuff, the long, sordid history of the hotel's management changing hands and it being owned by some shady characters, some Vegas business dealers, mafia men coming to stay at the hotel, weird stuff with the money, mm-hmm. um, deaths that took place. I mean, it's really endless. And he's thinking, why didn't anyone ever tell me this? Number one. Number two, at some point he says, oh, this is my book. This is what I should be writing about, a history of the hotel. And weirdly, he tells Ullman that when he talks to him on the phone, and Ullman gets pissed. He wants to fire him because you can't write a book digging up all the garbage that happened at this hotel. And then Al talks to him, and he's going, I helped you get this job. I have an interest in this hotel. What are you thinking? Why why would you do this? And Jack keeps thinking they're trying to stifle his creative freedom. He's kind of starting to go off the deep end. Another important thing, and you noticed it, Wendy is wondering why he keeps displaying gradually over time more and more of his old drinking habits, even though he's not drinking. So he starts swiping at his lips very often with his handkerchief, which he used to do when he was drinking, to the point that they eventually start getting dry and cracked and bloody. He's chewing Excedrin, another one of his habits to deal with hangovers the day after. I just drink more. That's how I deal with it. So there are these kind of weird things going on in the background. You can kind of see that in the movie where he almost looks drunk or hungover. There's a few times I think we should point this out where it looks like Jack is just crazy. He's staring out into nothing. What I believe is that's when he's talking to the ghosts. So we see him staring into nothing. He looks crazy. And we think it's too early for him to get crazy. It's even before the snow falls. But what he's actually doing is he's already being, I guess, haunted by the ghosts. He's talking to them. We don't see it until he sees Lloyd. Mm Mm-hmm. But he's already had many discussions with other ghosts and we're unaware. And the way that we're seeing this stuff going on with his writing in the movie, a month passes and his writing is still going nowhere. Because he's not writing about the hotel, he's trying to go back to this play. It's kind of a disaster. Mm -hmm. In the books, he realizes the characters are all wrong and he has to go back and change the entire thing. But that's because of the projection he's putting onto them now in his own mind. In the movie, we see that While he's struggling to write, Danny and Wendy explore the hotel's hedge maze and that Halloran is on his way to Florida, where he spends the winters. Then the snow starts to come, and Wendy learns that the phone lines are out due to the heavy snowfall. So all they have left is this radio that we see her kind of briefly talking to people on. Yeah, CB. Yeah, the CB radio. And at some point, when when she tells them the lines are down, the guy instructs her to leave the radio on all the time. Just in yes. case they should need anything. Need to open line. So they can, well, also so they can get a hold of them. Mm-hmm. Well, Danny also has frightening visions, and Jack becomes more prone to violent outbursts as his mental health deteriorates. Eventually, Danny's curiosity about room 237 overtakes him when he sees the room's door open. And later, Wendy finds Jack screaming during a nightmare when he fell asleep at his typewriter. After she awakens him, Jack says he dreamed he killed her and Danny. That was a very well-acted scene, that whole part. Mm-hmm. That is more directly from the books. Okay. And he's so upset, and it 
works just like this, that Danny arrives visibly traumatized and bruised, and Wendy accuses Jack of being the one to abuse him, which Jack denies. But he does go over to the hotel's gold room. <laughs> when she's yelling at him, you see him like, I didn't... Like, he's very uh, taken aback. He's sad, um, almost you? scared. Like, I, I, never, I never did that hurt. And that turns into anger. Mm-hmm. And that's when we see, I think that was a beautiful Jack Nicholson scene when he's uh, walking down that hallway and the, the score is there and, and he's like, I would never do that. And now we go into the gold room. And yeah, that's right from the books. He's yelling at her, you're never going to let me forget it, are you? The time he broke Danny's arm because right. now she's always just going to assume the worst. And he didn't touch him this time. It wasn't him. So he goes, he meets Lloyd, complains about his marriage. He is actually drinking with Lloyd. Do you think it's real? Even though there's no alcohol there, he's imagining himself drinking and he's getting drunk. The novel is explaining that. Even though he is, he's realizing the drinks don't look or feel real. He's pretending to knock them back. And as he's doing so, he's getting drunk. Hmm. So when Wendy comes in to confront him, he already Kind of feels like he has a buzz on. Wendy comes into the gold room and tells Jack that Danny told her this story, that a crazy woman in room 237 attempted to strangle him. So now she is terrified. Maybe there's somebody else in the hotel with us. She's asking Jack to go check it out. He goes up to the room and does, in fact, encounter a dead woman's ghost. Yep. This is the terrifying scene where he thinks he's making out with a young woman and it turns into an old rotting woman. Visually, that is pretty terrifying. But he goes down and tells Wendy he saw nothing. Wait, wait, wait. Tell the Clatchers what you told me about that scene. Oh, the woman who filmed it? Yeah. Yeah, so because of the multiple takes, they had to find an actress who was okay to just basically walk around naked for six hours on end. <laughs> that scene, believe it or not, took all day. Mm-hmm. I think Kubrick was just like, do it again. <laughs> well, you never know. Um... Interesting that he tells Wendy he found nothing. This is really the start of a hard turning point because he is becoming fully aware that it's true. Everything about the hotel is true. But he also, A, feels like he needs to stay in the book. He has to finish his writing. He has no other option besides this job. If he Mm -hmm. leaves, he loses everything. But B, the hotel is convincing him they want him. And he could be the caretaker. He could be great at this job. All he's got to do is put his wife and his kid in line. And that's really exemplified through the interaction that he has with Delbert Grady. So after he denies this to Wendy. And blames it on the kid. Yeah, they argue over whether or not they should take Danny out of the hotel. Wendy desperately wants to leave. Jack is getting mad at her. He goes back to the gold room and it's now in full swing. There's a ball going on, all these people, and he meets Grady. The ghost, Grady, informs Jack Danny reached out to Halloran using his talent. He's trying to interfere with what's going on here. And Jack's got to take some action. He's got to correct his wife and child. Should we reenact this scene? <laughs> Don't worry, Clatchers. I, I won't put it in. corrected her. Nice. I won't put it in. <laughs> you heard it in the bonus. You'll never have to hear it again. It, it really is a great scene, though. Oh, yeah. That I mean, bathroom. Jack is doing some weird... Over the top things. Jack Nicholson, yeah. Um, there's certain, and I didn't realize until I tried to reenact it, and I'm like, why is he acting this way? All right, well, I guess I'll act it that way too. He's losing it. 
It's very interesting. What's interesting is that red fucking bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's just color theory, guys. No one would decorate a bathroom that way. <laughs> well, I think Kubrick is trying to... Make it scary. Put some things yeah. in there. It's also at this point, though, that Danny reaches out to Halloran using... I think he was spazzing out, and Halloran felt it. Yes. In the book, he intentionally oh, okay. goes out in his mind and says, help, Dick. You got to come help. So much better. Yeah. Come on. And that's why Dick jumps on a plane, flies back to Colorado. While he's doing so, we get this weird scene of Danny going into another trance and calling out Red Rum. Red Rum. Wendy can't get him out of it this time. So he's sort of stuck in Tony mode. She doesn't know what to do, so she goes back to Jack. She goes into the Colorado room, and she finds that Jack has been typing pages, all filled with the same phrase. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, This, then and now, continues to terrify me as the scariest part of the movie. Psychologically, yeah. Just seeing that, if that was you, and I'm thinking, over a month, you're in there every day, all day, working on this book. I'm seeing a stack of hundreds of pages filling up. And then I go in there and I see that. I I would lose it. I don't know what I would do. I'd probably grab a bat too. (laughs) (laughs) She begs a psychotic Jack to leave the hotel with Danny, but he starts to threaten her. At which point that's when he's backing her up the stairs. She's got the bat and she finally knocks him unconscious. Another great scene. With Jack Nicholson. The way he's talking to her, I think that's just a brilliant scene. Wendy, darling, light (laughs) of my life. (laughs) Love it. Uh, She gets that good shot at him, despite the fact that she's swinging that bat really weirdly. He falls down the stairs, gets knocked unconscious, and she has the best idea so far. She drags him into the pantry in the kitchen and locks him in. Mm -hmm. So smart. He's got food. He's not going to die. He'll be fine in there, but he can't get out. And this could give her her chance to escape. Very smart. A couple of problems with this. She goes to the radio and finds out Jack has disabled it. She can't call for help. Which, by the way, when Jack disables it, it's still plugged in. It's still on. If you touched the motherboard like he did, you would be fried. That would have been a funny moment if he was trying to disable it. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> she goes to the snowcat and finds out I think he removed the battery in the books. Here, it looks like he cut something, cut some wires. Yeah, I don't know enough about cars. Well, she's got no way to escape. And the worst thing, we see Jack conversing through the pantry door with Grady, who unlocks it and frees him. I think it would have been just a terrific narrative tool to let the viewers be aware that they're growing stronger because of Danny. Mm -hmm. To the point where now they can physically open doors. Well, they're almost tapped into him now. So when Danny's doing the whole red rum thing, Mm -hmm. he's in a trance, Wendy can't get him out. It's almost like the Danny mind has gone into hibernation. The Tony has to take over because this is a defense mechanism. The kid has to go away to save himself. But the hotel is probably really able to almost like be feeding off of him at this point. He's just a battery right now. And this is where it just explodes. Jack starts to come after them. He hacks through the apartment's main door with an axe. Iconic. Wendy is able to send Danny out through the bathroom window, but can't get out of it herself. So Jack breaks through the door, and Wendy manages to get a good slash at his hand with the knife, causing him to retreat. I would have stabbed him in the face when he stuck his head in. Yeah, I think she's completely... Useless. She's crippled at this point. 
crippled with fear, physically crippled in the books because Jack almost killed her oh, wow. in that exchange that they had together. I think she wound up hitting him over the head with a glass bottle, but he fractured part of her spine. He, oh, my God. Like, like she, oh, he almost strangled her. She can't talk the rest of the time. It's bad. All right, so this is Jack Nicholson getting hyped about this scene in the background, trying to get himself in the head. I hope it uh, translates well, just audibly. Come on, come on, come on! You could see him hopping around the room and pumping himself up. And they were getting rid of his cussing, so it ruined everything. Mm. But you see, yeah, he's like, I'm a fucking mag- ex-murderer. <laughs> <laughs> well, also here, they can hear Halloran arriving in the snowcat outside. So it gives Wendy and Danny some hope. Danny runs and hides. But unfortunately, as we mentioned, Dick comes inside and starts yelling and announcing himself. And so Jack comes downstairs and murders him. One shot with the axe. And then he runs outside to pursue Danny into the hedge maze. Wendy is running through the hotel looking for Danny, encountering ghosts, finally getting sights of what is really going on inside the hotel. Yeah. She sees the elevator full of blood. Iconic scene. Love that scene. She finds Halloran's corpse. So it's really kind of all hopes lost now. Yeah. And in the hedge maze, we see Jack following Danny, but Danny has a plan. He lays a false trail to mislead Jack. He hides behind a snowdrift while Jack follows it and is then able to run back out. I like that. And that scene is very dramatic. Uh, I think it plays very well. Mm -hmm. Maybe Kubrick went with that because it plays better on screen. You have this maze. And I guess Jack is just, he's in pain. He's crazy. But I keep saying to myself, why would you start running where there's no more footprints? Like, uh... Because they end, and he doesn't know where to go, so he just picks a direction. That's the whole thing about what Danny did that was brilliant. He had the tracks go up to a certain point, and then they stop. They go nowhere, and he backtracked himself so that the dad would do exactly that. Where did he go? I got to pick a direction, I guess. Yeah, don't pick a direction where there's no footprints. The only way there's footprints is the way they came in. He is... He's crazy at this point. And concussed and bleeding. Oh, true, true. I mean, to the point that I understand... (laughs) He's concussed and crazy and now freezing. But the way he's talking is so, it's almost as though someone cut off his tongue. Mm. He's like, oh, <laughs> it just, it gets really extreme here. It is very suspenseful with Danny. You are completely terrified for him. It does show one of the few points in the movie. He's like this the whole book long, so smart and able to really intelligently try to get away out of this. Of course, there is no hedge maze in the books. As we mentioned, it does end with Jack chasing Danny around the hotel and Danny kind of being told, you have to remember what your father forgot. And what he forgot is he needs to keep dumping the boiler. Right. Otherwise, it's going to get too high on the pressure and explode. And that's exactly what happens. And I think, yeah, I think in today's day of CGI, you would they would definitely have gone this route. Mm-hmm. A huge, wild explosion. Well, I love even more so now Dr. Sleep, where Flanagan almost fixes it. Mm. He's like, all right, Mr. King, I'll give you that explosion, even in another story. And Danny will do it this time. Yeah, it is, it is like it. 
sort of retroactively amazing mm-hmm. because we were able to tie those two things up. And as you said, without the CGI and the money, I think Kubrick here did make a really smart decision. Mm-hmm. This maze that we didn't have, this visually beautiful thing, the terror of being outside in the freezing cold with Jack chasing Danny. It's good. It's a good ending. It is a good ending, but it was so abrupt. Mm-hmm. And now with the cutting, I understand you were saying they cut so much. It goes from Jack uh, making one final turn to all of a sudden it's like, cut, he's frozen. And the weird frozen face, yeah. which I don't like. And then cut photo. Weird picture. <laughs> was he always here? It was 1921. What? That's another thing that, that I was thinking about throughout the movie. They keep saying like, well, you were always here. You've always been the caretaker. Yeah. He has deja vu. I feel like I've been here before. So what is it? Is it that he's always been there? Or that it's just... confuses matters. And I think this yeah. is Kubrick trying to get too Kubrickian. wacky with it. Um, you don't need that. And what is 30 more seconds to put in that yeah. final stringing it together scene? Look, you never cut the ending. The ending is what's important. You got to wrap it up. And it up. was like 30 seconds. Yeah. To make sense out of oh, all so this. cool. Then you start saying, wait, that kind of makes sense. If Allman is there for many years and he's the one in charge, why wouldn't the spirits have, maybe not as intensified because he doesn't have a shine, but infiltrated his brain a little bit? Has he been in on this the whole time? Is he not that or good of a guy? Or even just the fact that he will do anything for his hotel, which you do which get that the sense spirits in the book. Telling them to do anything to keep this up and going. Uh, well, but this is how we end it. We go to that photograph in the hallway where we see Jack is pictured standing amid a crowd of party revelers from 1921. He's in the front. He is the caretaker. I like that, though. I do. He'll be here in the hotel forever. Well, Jason, this is going to take us to our rating. Before we do that, we've done two other big Stephen King adaptations. Mm Mm-hmm. So for Jared... We got another one coming. Yeah, we've done the it's, but I really want to pick the two that we very much loved which was Gerald's Game, and we both gave it a nine, and Dr. Sleep, closest to this, we both gave it a nine. Two of our highest ratings for movies. So on a scale of one to ten, what do you give The Shining? Well, Chris, I have to tell you straight up, the Clatchers are probably thinking, oh, they're going to grade this so poorly. They had so many complaints. There's a few things to keep in mind. We're holding this at the highest of standards. But two, and I didn't even say one, but two... We acknowledge it's a cult classic. Uh, We will be watching it again in the future. It's not a bad movie in any stretch of the imagination. It is a classic for a reason. I think it set the standards for future movies in this category. And it suffers mostly by comparison to the book. Exactly. Without any knowledge of the book, I'd have no complaints. It's just that you brought to light. You've given me the shine (laughs) of what it could have been. I'm going to grade it against Dr. Sleep, and I'm going to give this a solid 7.8. And that's still really good. I'm always apologetic with my grade. Yeah, I mean, I think before the book, I probably would have gone an 8. Because I definitely still don't like it as much as Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep. Mm-hmm. And having given it a 7.5, I like it more than it. I think I'm going to go 7.7. Okay. Rooms. I think that's great. Oh, it's Rooms. Okay, how about MVS, your most valuable shine? Yes. I'm going to have some fun with this. I'm not going to go Jack Nicholson because, I mean, that's too obvious. I'm going Dick Halloran. I love him. 
and I wanted more of him. You're stealing the best character. Oh, you're, you're going to do the <laughs> well, same thing? Well, he's obviously the best one because I don't think they dropped the ball in any way with him. The only thing we want is more. More. Well, they dropped the ball when they dropped an axe into his <laughs> chest right away. Okay, but if I can't have Dick, I do have to say... If I can't have... <laughs> such a child you're such a child if i can't have halloran i have to say the man who did most with the least time on screen was grady oh yeah he was great he was phenomenal he gives us backstory in a short space of time i also would have loved to see more of him me he too. intrigues me i love that he's the voice too he's like we're uh we're losing faith in you jack mm. he's the one in the other end of the door um I'd like to give a runner-up to uh, Halloran's bedroom. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk it's about those uh, naked, naked lady pics. Yeah, just so... It's like, are you in college? I, like, it's <laughs> weird because Kubrick's only comment about this was he didn't want his powers to be seen as coming from him being godly or, or good in a, a connection with some force of goodness. That okay. He wanted him to just be seen as a normal average man. Yeah, and normal average men have giant photos. They do of not. Naked chicks. So I, this is not an excuse because I think it's freaking weird. You know what? Let's find other movies Scatman was in, and see if there's one that we want to watch. Not for the podcast, just for fun. Yeah, I don't know um, if he was in a lot prior to this or what he was in. I've never looked at it. Well, Jason, it's that time. Are you ready for some trivia? Let's do it. How well do you know The Shining? At the breakfast scene, in the very beginning of the movie, before they leave their apartment, Wendy's talking to Danny, and she's reading a book. Mm -hmm. What book is she reading? The Catcher in the Rye. Yes. And I know you know that, because you mentioned it when mm -hmm. we were watching. I said, I can't believe you saw that. How about when Wendy discovers that Jack has been typing pages of gibberish that all say, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy? There is actually a few intentional typos where that line says something different. Instead of boy, it said bot, a dull bot. Which I hadn't caught, but that's kind of cool. Yeah, but that's the only one I could see. There's another one. It's not till later when she's flipping through the pages a couple times. It says, all work and no play make Jack adult boy, as in an adult. An adult boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. Which I, I kind of like the play on that. Me too. I was just thinking about the intern that had to type all that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Apparently they did have a, a secretary of Kubrick's or something. Just. Yeah. It took her months. And she's probably like, I fucking hate working for this guy. <laughs> I gotta type the same I thing. have a degree. <laughs> oh, this one is crazy. At the time of the movie's release, the MPAA had just come out with these policies on what you could and could not show in trailers. They did not allow the portrayal of blood in trailers that would be approved for all audiences. But, as we know, The Shining's trailer has this iconic shot of blood pouring out of the elevator. Yeah. How did they get away with this? Um, uh, they said it was high C. I can't believe how close. They said it was something else. Kubrick did. Not high C. What else is red? What else is red? What else is red? I don't know. He convinced them it was rusty water flooding out of the elevator. How dumb is 
the them, the people. That, I don't think they had seen the movie. I don't give a shit if you haven't seen the movie. You I, see that, you're like, oh, I know, that's, but is this movie about like a, a um, what if they an elevator that's <laughs> the hotel was falling apart, natural disaster? I don't know. Rusty water. <laughs> Come on. Somehow it worked. Okay, last question. How many times did Danny croak red rum when he's in the in the room before his mother woke up and Jack started to break into the apartment? Oh, it was so many times it was annoying, actually. It reached a point where I was like, okay, I get it. I get it, kid. Red rum, 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 rum. Uh, I want to say like <laughs> 27. More. <laughs> 37. Close. 36. Jesus. But I think a total of 42 or 43 times. Because she wakes up and then he starts After going, she wakes up. He starts going crazy. Yeah. I actually counted it when we were watching last night. Last night. Because I said, no way. No way he says it 36 times before she wakes up. And that's not in the book. Right? Red rum? No. Yeah. Wow. Well, Yes. The Red Room concept is in the book. Actually, it's, it's very important. Danny is continually trying to understand because he can't read. And part of the reason he wants... Yeah, I thought he was super smart. He's five in the books. He's a dumbass. He can read. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's just learning to read. He right, doesn't know yeah. big words. But part of the reason he's working so hard in the novels and he's having his mother bring him back books from the library is that Tony shows him a lot of signs and he wants to be able to read them. And in particular, he wants to know what is red rum. So that is kind of a big moment when he realizes that he's actually talking about murder. But as far as like... Red rum means murder? Are you serious right now? I thought it was the blood. It was like from the elevator is the red rum. I'm just kidding. I I almost just had a heart attack. (laughs) Anyway, Are you fucking serious? yeah. So sorry, I ruined. You were in a, on a track, and I ruined. It uh, no, that's okay. Just more stuff about Tony. But Tony can talk to him. So why does he have to give signs to read <laughs> if he can talk and say murder? Well, when we kind of know more that Tony is Danny's adult self, which is really just parts of Danny's current brain that are able to operate a little above what he's consciously aware of. It's trying to give him signs and ways that he can piece it together because Danny is only capable of so much intellectually. Sure, it's fine. um, But also emotionally of handling at one time. Yeah. And that's why when it's too much, he actually does go into trances. So it's almost like his own mind working with itself. Oh, such a delicate thing to play. I want them to redo it. Again, I, I just want them to redo it and us knowing who Tony is now. I mean, oh. It's pretty amazing, right? That could be a, a, a movie on itself. I mean, Jack could mean less. Make it more about Danny. Well, definitely more of an even balance than what we have here. Especially when you know there is going to be a Doctor Sleep, which. Yeah. That's what I mean. If we have a prequel now. Mm-hmm. But our man's got to do it, though. Well, that brings us into some of the themes. And again, we could go on and on here, but there's clearly themes of Danny with the childhood abuse and the relationship with his father, especially when in the books you look at Jack has this history of his own childhood abuse. Dick has a history of abuse from his grandfather. And this is something we see over and over again in King Works. Childhood trauma and abuse. And here, the fear of parental abandonment which we also see in Carrie, 
and in Firestarter with Charlie McGee. So somebody commented here, in King's view, children like Danny Torrance are able to deal with fantasy and terror on their own terms better than adults because of the size of their imaginative capacity and their unique position in life. And we kind of see that theme played within it. Yep. So this is more about Stephen King himself. Oh, always. Yeah. He absolutely no questions stated that everything with Jack and his alcoholism was his own story with alcoholism and addiction and mm-hmm. how afraid he was of what that could turn into with his family, wow. what he could do to them, and that he had to exercise it in a way by writing about it. And I think that's another reason he was so upset with Kubrick's portrayal of yeah. Jack. That's a piece of you. Yeah. And your most difficult life story. It's personal. And you ruined it. Yeah. And um, misery is what he was writing when he was trying to get off of it. I think that might have been more cocaine and pain medicine. Okay. He writes about the pain medicine there in such a unique way. And here, a lot more about alcohol, okay. though we do get the Excedrin addiction. So there were several different points of his life that he had addiction problems in various ways. Mm. Uh, But absolutely also the childhood thing, like we mentioned in It, it's about finding connection with others, being able to have strength and courage to stand up to things that are scary. Um, Here it's more about your own personal imagination and how that can be a help to you. Um, It can take you away from things when needed. It can help you to imagine things, but it also can be scary because you can see the possibilities in the world. Uh. Um, Number one, with... The supernatural, but number two, with his own father and what could happen there. It says that Danny has ambivalence towards his father. He loves Jack very, very much, but through his shining, he can also see how emotionally disturbed his father is and how afraid. King said himself there were evidence of parallels between Danny and his father. Danny, like Jack, may someday fall into the behavioral patterns of the father he both loves and fears. And sure enough, in Dr. Sleep, he kind of starts to go there. Wow. So it... Makes a lot of sense. Um, but also just the inherent, uh, they call it evil, I think, darkness that's inside of all humans. So Kubrick stated there's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. One of the things these horror stories can do is show us the archetypes of the unconscious, the dark side, without us having to confront it directly. So again, another huge difference between him and King. They're saying that Kubrick was both an absurdist, meaning that he views life and people as essentially chaotic and without purpose, and a nihilist, believing that there's no bigger plan or real meaning to life. So I think he approached this movie with those thoughts, whereas King approached his book very differently. (laughs) Uh, This writer says that King views life with a fiercely passionate and emotional point of view, almost a romantic in the sense that he fiercely connects with his characters loves them and in effect becomes them when he's writing them. So you always have a sense of compassion towards them. You want things to work out okay. And there's a hopefulness that they can overcome. Mm. Those two things are in stark contrast with each other. So of course you're going to wind up with two radically different endpoints, the book and the movie. We are almost done, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention there was much that followed this movie including something we haven't talked about yet here, Room 237. And that is the documentary that goes into all of the conspiracy theories. Oh. 
You I don't know about You haven't this. heard of this? No. Okay, it's a documentary film because there were so many speculation into the possible meanings and actions of the film. Things that people thought Kubrick put into it because of inconsistencies in camera shots and angles and whatever. I, have, I know bits and pieces of this. There's ambiguity, symbolism, differences from the book. So a lot of theories built up. Uh, ranging from this is a metaphor for the Holocaust to a confession that Kubrick helped fake the moon landing. Yes, that one I know. And people have found meaning and evidence, so to speak, for their theories based on numbers and colors and images we see in the movie. So those who believe that Kubrick helped fake the moon landing, Mm -hmm. at one point Danny is wearing a sweater. Yes. Apollo 11. There's a couple mentions or pictures of moon things. He's got a toy rocket in his room or spaceship or something like that. The number symbols, if you add this together, it's the distance from the Earth to the moon. You know, it just goes on and on. Oh, wow. So it gets deep. Yeah. Um, There's a whole thing about the Native American symbology, you know, very obvious things of the The decorations in the hotel itself. Yeah, but then that spins off onto something else. So there's a bunch of them. And 237 interviews people who are conspiracy theorists about why they believe these things. Oh, that's great. We should watch that. I watched part of it. The filmmaker's view is very obviously this is a bunch of bunk and hokum and how nutty are these people. But also... (laughs) It's out there in the zeitgeist, and so many people firmly believe it. They've written books and their own things on it that somebody should really compile it and look at it all in the form of a documentary. So that's what that is. Well, Kubrick might have been a part of the moon landing video, because what we know is it was real, but there was scenes that were created to make it better for TV. Because if you think about it back then, some of the shots they got, you just can't get. Well, that's what people have said, and they've said it wasn't real at all, and that Kubrick helped fake it through the use of his filming technology. Right. And that this movie is essentially a confession, I helped do that. He may have helped better it for entertainment purposes for TV. But even that's a stretch to think that they would... I I would be willing to entertain that. Or it's just like kids loved... NASA back mm-hmm. then because it was a big deal. And exactly. Cool. Rockets are awesome. Even King mentions it a couple of times in his book because he was on the minds of people at the yeah. time. It is interesting, though. If you've never seen it, it's definitely worth checking out whether you believe these things or not. Just the is it amount on YouTube? of time. and en- Yes, it's on YouTube, I think. The amount of time and effort people put into... Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The numerology. It's funny because they... They will, on the other hand, say, but wait, this and this doesn't add up to this. And then the people will say, no, but if you look at this, this, and this, it does. And you're like, whoa. Uh, 9-11, my dad was, he got the, I forget what it's called. There was a documentary that yep, was created I saw after. It. And he like gave me a disc. He bought 50 of them. They he was can giving them to people, you need to know this. Very convincing because yeah. these people have thoroughly looked at it from every point of view. Oh. And they have an answer. And it was very well everything? done, too. It was two kids. I say kids because younger than what I we are now. This is not quite as sophisticated as that with their theories, but it's it's pretty good. It's interesting to watch. 
We also mentioned there was a TV series. It was eventually readapted in 97 to follow King's book more closely because of his dissatisfaction with the Kubrick adaptation. However, Kubrick owned the rights to the 1980 adaptation. King allowed that to happen. So in order for him to readapt his own book, he had to go to Kubrick. And get his... uh... To get the rights to do that. So Kubrick said yes, but he required that King sign a legally binding contract saying he would no longer be able to bring up the frequent public criticisms of Kubrick's film. That's understandable. He allowed one thing, and I think this is telling. The sole commentary that he was disappointed with Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance, as though he was going insane before he arrived at the hotel. Kubrick said, you can talk about that, but that's it. So maybe he agrees. Now that he looks back at it. Maybe. Agrees that he could have been wrong or this was a sticking point. You know, you look back at some work you do and you go, yeah, I think they're right about that. I I misjudged it. Mm. We do it all the time in life. I want to see this too. IMDb is giving it a 6.1 Rotten Tomatoes of 42%, which is not great. But I would just like to know in my own mind to have the complete picture of how did he see it? How did McGarris see it? I'm willing to watch it. The critics say Stephen King's television adaptation of the novel is more faithful than its cinematic counterpart, which often those TV King things are. But unfortunately, this miniseries is hobbled by a drab literalism of the text and cheesy effects that diminish the scares. That's always the criticisms of the miniseries because they don't have money. Yeah. I mean, look at that picture. That's from the miniseries. That looks kind of corny, no? Why does he look like he's a demon? Yeah, my thing is always, <laughs> if they get more of the essentials right, I can look past some bad visuals, especially like, I'm thinking 80s. I know they didn't do the TV till much later, but in my mind, that's the time frame this all takes place. Right. So that's on our list to do, is watch the miniseries, and for you to check out with me, Room 237. I'm not going in there. One more thing I, I'd like to end on, kind of a funny note. I saw in all the literature I was reading that apparently it became big around this time, the early 2000s. It? No. Oh. This thing to recut trailers from horror movies or really scary movies and make them look like romantic comedies or family movies. I didn't know about this. Oh, yeah. I mean, they made um, Karate Kid into a trailer where the Karate Kid, the good guy, is the bad guy. There's a lot. It's a, they're pretty awesome. They did Silence of the Lambs as a romantic That's amazing. comedy. I hadn't seen any of these. So they had one for The Shining, turning it into a family fun comedy. Ooh, let's look at it. Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. No good ones. Meet Danny. He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. Nah. What's up, Doc? Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but it, there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now... So clever. Sometimes what we need the most is just around the corner. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything for you. Climbing up on South Spring Hill. 
I love that. And they didn't take anything, just the way they put the words together Mm -hmm. and the clips, the music, so smart. I had a good laugh at that. So Jason, any last words on The Shining? No, I really enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed tremendously breaking it down with you. I think this is one of our stronger movie reviews in a long time. And I'm excited. I hope our Clatchers listen to it as well. And uh, as always, guys, thank you so much for being Patreon members at this level. We couldn't do it without you, and you know that. And thank you for choosing this. This has been rattling around in our to get to someday list, especially once we started covering some Stephen King adaptations, once we did Dr. Sleep. It is a true classic. The fact that we had to go back to throwbacks during this time frame actually has let us cover some great movies that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And I think that's been a ton of fun for us, especially considering the timing. We have made the official announcement that we're going to be covering CBS All Access The Stand come December. (laughs) And we just recorded our first podcast for that channel. Yeah, to go up on that channel probably next week. So take a look out for that. You guys have heard a little of that on Patreon because we've discussed when the news about the cast came out, the comparison. Yeah. So forgive me if that's a repeat for some of you, but people... There's a lot of other stuff in there too, though. Yeah, people over on those channels haven't heard it. And since then, the full trailer has come out, the two-minute trailer. Yeah. So that gave us a lot more meat to sink into there. We are so excited to be coming back with that. And this just feels like a great way to get into the Stephen King world again. Yeah, and uh, it's... I would leave you for Skarsgård. I would also leave you for Skarsgård. <laughs> so we can fight over that. Uh, Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. Now, music? Boom, 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 boom. You gotta do the other thing. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Listen to the actual song, and you'll hear those noises. I feel like they don't use the best parts of it. In the movie? Now that we listen to the whole thing. Yeah. I don't know. They use that weird drum thing over and over again. Oh. That little... Oh, yeah, during... This is just the opening. Yeah. I never heard that guy in the background. I don't think they play it all the way through. <laughs> uh.